Coming on the Agony Column podcast, KUSP's Catherine Petricelli speaks with author Helen Simpson. What do you use of your own life, and how do you go about incorporating it or caring about it in your writing? I mean, I always operate through comedy. It's the only way to approach life, as far as I can see. You see, I think farce, it's just tragedy speeded up very often. It's, it's like cartoons when you think all these terrible things happen in cartoons because they happen fast. Travel at the speed of life, next on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. After this, bad news flew in like iron filings to a magnet. One of Anna's teachers went off on compassionate leave when her beautiful student daughter was killed in a car accident. The teenage son of Harry's secretary, Paula, dropped dead of a heart attack during a Sunday morning football match. The woman in the dry cleaners told me about her husband's 70-year-old mother, who had hung herself from the banisters after her daughter's slow death from cancer. It was unbearable. I felt wild with fury when I heard such awful things. I thought, that's just not on. It's one thing if you've had a good innings, but Philippa hadn't had a good innings or anything like it, and neither had most of these people. We'd been led up the garden path. We'd been living in a fool's paradise. I wanted to make a complaint, write a letter to the manager in no uncertain terms. Stephanie rang to let me know what she'd chosen for the next book club meeting. It was about a man who'd been left paralysed by a stroke but had managed to write his life story by blinking at an amanuensis. What a survivor, said Stephanie admiringly. Of course he died. Now, are you going to Oliver Kitchen's funeral on Saturday? I think we might be away, I lied. Harry would be working over the weekend and I didn't want to take Tilly and Anna to a funeral. Anyway, I don't like it when they say they've just gone into the room next door, I added. Or that they're having a nice cup of tea with their loved ones in heaven. Sorry, are you religious, Stephanie? I wouldn't say I was overtly religious. I mean, I don't feel the need to go to church every Sunday or anything like that. There was a pause, then... I believe in something to rely on, she said, rather stiffly. Yes, that would be nice, I said. You've been listening to Helen Simpson read from her short story, Every Third Thought, out of her new collection, In the Driver's Seat. London author Helen Simpson's new short story collection, In the Driver's Seat, brings us tales that often revolve around internal dialogues of protagonists feeling the pressures of life and, importantly, the imminence of death. We look unflinchingly at family relations and how they play out through things like the daily grind, the wrong men, the current war. It is a harsh world, but one not without humor and second chances. In the driver's seat is Helen Simpson's fourth collection of short stories. She is also the author of a novella called Flesh and Grass and is the recipient of the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Welcome. Thanks for being in the studio. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. There is so much observation in this book. What I mean by that is the protagonists are so often the observers, and sometimes very literally. For example, in, in the story um, Up at the Villa, where you have these young people who snuck into a resort uh, pool and are hiding and, and watching this family drama take place. Mm. And then sometimes, more subtly, early one morning with a mother in a car sort of holding her tongue as she carpools her son and his friends to school. Does that make your characters 
somehow extra sympathetic with the reader kind of looking over their shoulder along with them? When I was doing these stories, I, I was interested in the way that you know, so much of our lives we spend thinking or observing, and especially in cars. I've been watching, you know, this, this collection's called In the Driver's Seat, and I've had a variety of very interesting drivers from airports and so on. But they, it struck me their lives as a lot of just sitting, reflecting, um, digesting experience. And then you have these conversations, very intimate conversations in cars, when you, when you don't, you, you won't be seeing the person again. The carpool story you mentioned, that's in the form of an interrupted mo monologue, which I thought would be fun to do in a story, and it really was interesting to do. I cut the woman's thoughts. She keeps quiet round children. She notices that otherwise they clam up. She just likes their chatter. But in between patches of that chat, you have her thoughts dipping down. And then um, it's a good rhythm. It's, it makes the story quite musical. Do you normally I, have a structure like that set out when you um, attempt a story? Do you start with a structure? Yes, like well, if I, for... I, I don't like to be bored. So I, I think with when I've got some sort of idea of what I want to write about, I'll be looking for an interesting way of, you know, just to make myself interested. Mm, mm. And up at a villa, that one where the teenagers are being voyeuristic, that was more like um, oh, taking a zoom lens and trying to take a photograph. And uh, there are various snapshots in that, making different pictures, just to see, again, to see whether I could do it. And I did it with that one. That's much shorter. but mm. So ch challenges for yourself, yes. each story. Yes, yes. Oh. That's part of the fun of it, I think. Each one's a different shape. Mm. Well, um, it's, it's really an enjoyable collection that holds together so tightly. Um, and, you know, even when there is that dialogue, it often gives way to the, the inner thoughts that they take over or any sort of... Uh, speech is reported speech very often. And maybe I could just invite you um, once again um, this early on, let's hear a little bit more out of the collection because there are so many voices. Uh, in this particular story called If I'm Spared, we have a male protagonist who has just gotten some potentially bad news. And it, it, this is one of those examples where it starts as a conversation and the conversation vanishes to the inner world. That's right. Well, Tom has gone along for, to hear his diagnosis from the surgeon. So what do you think this shadow thing is? He'd asked him cheerfully enough. I think it is lung cancer, Mr Horton had said in a grave voice, lacing his long white surgeon's fingers together on his blotter. Cancer, Tom had yelped. Of course, I cannot give a cast iron diagnosis until the results of your bronchoscopy and sputum test are on my desk, but that is what it looks like to me. Cancer, Tom had repeated, in more of a bleat this time. I'm sorry if this has come as a shock to you, said Mr Horton, but I believe in telling the truth. Oh, so do I, Tom had agreed, nodding his head vigorously. Uh, the truth is very, yes, absolutely. Mr Horton had gone on talking, but Tom somehow hadn't heard what he was saying. The man was huge. There was something of Belgium about him, the lack of life in the streets, the uncurtained windows. He saw him lurking in some airless Victorian interior, crammed with greedy aspidistra plants, more outside in the garden, gluttonous evergreens, fat, rank graveyard swathes of ivy and laurel and yew. An arboretum, murmured Tom, a pinetum. Sorry? No, no, said Tom, carry on. He was interested to see how Mr Horton was pushing himself further and further back from his desk during this consultation. He was al almost backing out of the window by the end. 
You can imagine him as a child waiting for punishment, enormous in shorts, lugubrious, at Eton or one of those places where they made you line up outside the door, then show your bottom. But he was up again with his hands stuck out to be shaken, and it seemed it was time to be off. Very often people do not take in everything I've told them, the talking tree said mournfully. Should you find this to be your own case, my secretary will give you written details of where to go, and so on, for the further tests I've advised. Thank you, said Tom, pumping his hand witlessly and grinning like a zany. Uh, well, there, I think, I think, Catherine, you're right. That's, that's, a, that's really cutting dialogue with um, inner thoughts, but that's the effect of shock. I'm, I'm interested when, you know, when you receive a shock, the, the, suddenly everything becomes surreal. Um, and this man is just, he, he's seeing things suddenly in images and th this man's turned into a talking tree. And um, <laughs> It's very it's, funny. I mean, here we are, you know, with a cancer diagnosis and it's, it's just very, very funny. <laughs> I, I'm very glad you said so because, <laughs> you see, I, I look at, it's, I can see why publishers hate to publish short stories because to a collection, trying to summarise it, there are all sorts of different subjects here, but there's a lot of cancer and car accidents and so on. But I want to make, I mean, I always operate through comedy. It's the mm. only way to approach life, as far as I can see. Mm. At least dark subject matter, it does, it makes the comedy more painful in a way, a little mm -hmm. harder. So, well, um, mm. actually, with that, um, I, I have a question that I almost hate to ask, but... And I know this isn't your doing, and I hate to make you answer for other people, but what do you think of the comparisons to, for example, Laurie Moore, who sort of has that hers might start out, the subject matter might start out more comedic, and, mm. and then they sort of wallop you with the pain, whereas maybe yours takes the reverse approach. Do you see huh. any similarities? Do you well, she's a, she's a great writer. I read with her in New York, actually, and ah. it was a very interesting twinning. Oh, I must tell you, just during that, for that New York reading... She got up to read from um, Anagrams, I think it was, and she, she held the book up to the audience as a, a sort of abstract painting on the cover and said, oh, at the time this was published, I thought it was a good idea to persuade the publisher to um, put my boyfriend's painting on the front of it. And she paused and then she said, time moves on. And she, just, <laughs> <laughs> she tore the cover off the book. And then she tore it into little pieces before she started the reading. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was great. So performance art as well as uh, I know. That's, yeah, that's it was a great reading, yes. <laughs> but also I read that story, the one you, uh, where the woman gets run over by a bus and you know, there's a lot of... And I, I, but I wanted it to be farce. You see, I think farce, it's just tragedy speeded up very often. It's, it's like cartoons when you think all these terrible things happen in cartoons because they happen fast. There's the entertaining surface while you're being hit underneath as well. Well, there's something very, very controlled in these stories. Are these people, and and I don't know, I don't know if it's the um, because it happens so much within someone's head, but then at the same time we have these issues that they're dealing with that are very much out of their control. Are you just mm -hmm. presenting a natural balance counterbalance that happens in life, trying to rein in what is? I suppose outside so. you see, of it's our interesting you, you talk about this control thing because um, this collection was called a different title in, in England. Yes. It, we, uh, it was published under the title Constitutional after the longest story, which is a circular walk round a heath and it's all about memory and so on and Alzheimer's. And, but Constitutional here, it was felt people might think it would get into the politics section, which I think was quite right. So mm. they, they chose in the driver's seat I think it, uh, to give an illusion of control, but it's illusory, really. 
Yeah. But I do love, I, I think cars give a very good metaphor for how things are. You're, you're, you're sitting in this controlled space and your thoughts are free. But actually quite often the, uh, if you've got a, have you noticed cars are very good places to have conversations that you, the other person can't get out and go out of the room? Mm. You also don't make eye contact. You don't make eye contact. You're both staring and, and you, quite uncomfortable things can be said. And quite often control issues are played out in cars. Mm. Think of uh, married couples and maps. Mm. And one not letting the other, you know, and then sort of navigation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've also heard it's a very good place, apparently, if you've got children to um, sort of sex ed. Sex ed in the car. Yes, because you don't have to look at each other (laughs) and they can't get out. (laughs) That's great. Um, Well, you know, it's it's interesting that so many of these characters are are kind of looking at the inevitability of their own fate um, in the tree uh, where we have an older man with a, a much older mother that he is trying to take care of in some way, mm-hmm. um, I guess I'll say. Uh, he does let loose. He, that is one of maybe the few places where there is this loss of control. And he, um, you know, yells at this uh, these, these workers that he thinks have taken advantage of his mother, only to find that he's misfired, yes. that it's the wrong people. Oh, it's interesting. Yes, you're right. When people lose their temper, it tends to be disastrous, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. I'm... I've not looked at that in myself. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm frightened of anger, Catherine. I don't know, <laughs> but um, it, it's true. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, more than one of your protagonists asks, "What's the point of sharing my story? At least my my personal story in a casual, to a casual acquaintance or in a casual setting? What is the point? Who does someone benefit from that? Can someone? Uh, well, on this tour, all I know is that I've some of my best conversations have been with these drivers. And it's, it's really, it's amused me because, you know, they've asked me what I'm doing. There's long journeys very often. It was mm-hmm. 80 miles this morning, you know. And you, uh, it's just, it's human contact, isn't it? It's just you've, to meet somebody else and you may not meet them again. They've been tickled by the title of this collection in the driver's seat, of mm. course. Mm-hmm. But no, what, what, and then they've told their stories very often or we've, we've had great conversations. It's, and that's... That's been very satisfying because that's partly what stories are in the same way, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's been gratifying for me to to see it in print, to see that grappled with, you mm-hmm. know, the, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? You know, when when is when is it that and when when do we do something, something When is it different? just chit-chat and when do you actually get down to, yes, well, I, I love mm-hmm. that mixture of you get these very superficial sort of formulaic things you have to say, like the weather's nice or whatever, and then it can immediately, it can just skyrocket into something else. Um, someone will tell you something vital about their marriage or someone's just died. And mm-hmm. yeah. Are you collecting ideas for news stories for in the driver's seat too? It sounds like <laughs> talking to all these drivers has made a big impression. <laughs> oh, no, I've always found that. Haven't you found when, when you're in a cab, there is something about the intimacy. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you know you're not meeting someone again, but I think it must, it must be a very in- interesting job, don't you think? It's a paradox. They, ha- you know, mm-hmm. yeah, they have these conversations, oh, yeah. presumably a lot. We yeah. should be seeing short story collections from the cab drivers then, I guess, is maybe what we're getting <laughs> at. Um, the, the men, the fathers in these stories, not portrayed in the warmest light, to say the least. Uh-huh. Um, which ones? What, what do we to think. do Tom, with that? Tom, yes, the lung cancer um, man. He's he's a well, bad and, father. Well, and we have the the father that's being observed in 
uh, up at the villa where the the young uh, kids are watching this family dynamic. And he's very unsympathetic and and comic again, though. Yes. Mm, mm. Well, we are observing a big shift in how men are supposed to be. Our generation, you know, with babies... Our fathers, they were allowed to be separate. They were allowed to get in after work, go to their room, listen to music, just not really engage. Mm-hmm. As long as they brought in some money and, you know, sort of now and then, once a year, took you out on a tricycle or something, that was enough. But now we're fine. We were educated, you know, equally, and we just think, us, oh, it's not right. And what used to be thought of as stoicism in a man and stiff upper lip is just now being seen as emotionally inadequate. And there's a big turnaround for lots of guys around about 40, 45. You know, mm. they're, they're a bit like the Queen's having to go to go through, you know. She's, she's being forced to sort of express emotion in public. Well, it's <laughs> just not good enough to keep Skin. a stiff upper lip. You know, you've got to, you've got to show you're a human being as well. Mm. And it's harder mm. work. Mm. Mm. So these are, are these transitional men in your I book? think they are, yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Hard to watch sometimes. Well, Hard to that's, watch. that's comedy again. You want the, you want a, car, a cold ride. Not cold. You want something sharp, don't you? You want something truthful. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, unless there's some pain behind the comedy, it's not really mm, biting enough. Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the at least the U.S. title story, mm-hmm. uh, in the driver's seat, it's also sort of presented as this ominous future. This man who is so perhaps wrong. Um, and the portrait of him that is that emerges in the story, kind of ugly. He is literally in the driver's seat in oh, the story, dri- yes. you know, driving the car. Yeah. And then we find out at the end, oh, you know, he he wants me to have his child, um, says well, his girlfriend. I know, but that you can tell somehow in that story. He's he's an ex rugby player. He's younger than her, and he's obviously, I think, she's very attracted to him physically. And she wants to be married again. You know, that's that, that's the dynamic there. Mm, mm. And and he's a bully. Mm. So I hope she doesn't get together with him. But we don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Mm. The end of the story, is she pregnant or isn't she? That's the last line. So, mm. Well, uh, you also sort of tap into the larger grief. Uh, and you tackle in the phlebotomist's love life, um, the current war, the Iraq war, essentially, um, you know, without any veiling, per se, which mm-hmm. was also nice and refreshing. <laughs> um, I wonder if you might read a passage from that uh, from that story. And there's some incredible lines that maybe we can talk about uh, afterward. Sure. It was very satisfying to read this story. I saved it for the Washington leg of the <laughs> reading tour. And um, I was reading with Nathan Englander. He read a, a story about war as well, set from his new novel. And I read this. It was it was it was good. Yeah. Nice. Um, this this actually was a commission from uh, which I wouldn't normally have taken on. But at the beginning of the war, do you remember four years ago? It looked as though it was going to be very short, and they were just about to start bombing. And the Guardian newspaper rang up, and they were ringing fiction writers to do a, a week's worth of stories. And I remember mm-hmm. them ringing three weeks after. I, I said I'd do it because I'd, I've got this idea. I'd always had it about a man and a woman at the beginning of a day, very close. By the end of the day, they're separate, sort of a big triangle shape. And I knew this was what I could do for this story and use, mm. use the details of the mm. Iraq war. But they rang up after three weeks and said, can you get a move on? The war's nearly over. It'll be over by the time you're giving it in. And if, well, look at it now, four years on. Yeah. Anyway, right, this is from the, phlebot- the phlebotomist love life. On the bus, it was standing room only. It had always caused her trouble with men, war, 
She dreaded its approach from the moment when they first mentioned its possibility on the news to the pretend discussion about rights and wrongs in the run-up. She remembered her first proper boyfriend, Ewan, and his rage at her objections to the Gulf War. True, her talk had sounded childish, even to her, even then when she was only 20, wishing that women could go off and live on another continent, man-free, war-free, or at least go to that neutral continent taking the children with them for the duration of any war the men had created. Without testosterone and the desire for phallic toys, she'd argued, the world would be a better place. Bollocks, he'd said. Who had she been with during the Kosovo conflict? Oh, with Dan, of course. War is the worst, she'd told him, living in a state of murder and the reversal of all things good. What about the Second World War, he demanded. Eh? Wasn't that a just war? You'd have been wringing your hands along with Neville Chamberlain, wouldn't you? All out for appeasement. At times like this, she cried, women get put in their place. They go horribly quiet. It comes down to rape and babies. Ah, you don't like me going on at you like this. You prefer me in a Shador, a burqa. You're like a fox terrier, aren't you, he'd said when she continued to disagree with him. You get hold of an idea and then nothing will stop the yapping. I was just interested with that story, you know, the, 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 the dialogue before the war, the way people were talking all over, well, you know, in Britain. I was just trying to give a snapshot of our state of mind then. But the way women, somehow you, you shut up. If you, if you try and talk in a mixed group, at least where I was, the, the men were saying, well, if it works and if this and that, and they were very interested in the weapon power and so on. And the women were just sort of, but it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. You know, they, but they, it sounded, it's very hard to say it. And you find yourself divided quite often. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was just my group, but... Um, no, I think that, I, I think, I don't know what kind of response you've gotten on touring, but... Um, well, it's the, I think it's there in the, in the collection for a very strong reason. Good. I'm yeah. glad. Mm. Yeah. No, I found, oh yeah, after that reading in Washington, um, several men came up. And they bought the collection and said, I'd never thought of it like that, which I, I thought was amazing. Because so, that's the amazing yeah. part of putting it in writing yeah. and putting it yeah. in fiction. There's something thrilling about if you feel you've said something for the first time, uh, that you've brought something. It was, that's why... Writing about babies and domestic issues, which could, it's very humdrum, you know, trying to describe the plod and sigh without making it boring. But there's something exciting too because it just hasn't been done before mm -hmm, in mm -hmm, history, you know, mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Either women writers haven't had children um, and that's why they're able to write, or if they had children, then they, they, they sort of couldn't get any writing done. Mm -hmm. I think there's only one exception. Mrs. Gaskell is the only one I can think of, but mm. there we are. Mm. Well, you sometimes have created these expansive, expansive in, in short form, <laughs> expansive stories where before there were kind of these sayings, and I think this might go along with some of what we're talking about now, or in the in the story constitutional that you referred to earlier, where you know this woman is literally walking the circular path and she's describing her grandfather who um, has you know sort of gone from baby to baby now uh, with Alzheimer's. Lots of other surprises, lots of sort of cradle-to-grave life cycle circles happening in that story. Mm -hmm. And you kind of take that, that thing we know or that thing we say um, and you, you put a story behind it. You flesh it out. Is that what story is? Is, is that a goal of story? Partly is that the goal? I think it's just partly how I think. I, I like to play with, you know, when there's a phrase or a, a particular, um, oh, what do you call it? Um, sorry. 
a cliche, if there is a cliche. Um, it's lovely to take it and then work on it and sort of play it backwards and forwards and try it out and, mm -hmm. and keep going back to it. And it's, it's, a, it's a playful thing. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting where it takes you very often. And you're right, the, that story, oh, I'd read a lot about Alzheimer's. I've been reading on neurological books and so interesting once you find certain images. Apparently our development from babyhood to the age of 15 that's how long it takes to unravel um, in Alzheimer's. You start going down, you know, 15 years, and you go backwards in the same, very gradually, as a child grows up, or you grow back down. Hmm. And if you do live to the end of this process, then you're lying in a cot again, with, with, and you have these same reflexes that very new babies have, the sort of planter reflex, where you grasp someone's finger if they put it in the palm of your hand. Hmm. And it just seemed... Well, it's it's very sad, but also there's something there's something well symmetrical and satisfying about mm. it too. It makes it less frightening. Who mm. do you read? What do you read? Oh, besides neurological books. On <laughs> oh, let's see. I like short stories. I try to read one every morning before I get out of bed, because that way you've stolen a march on the day. Um, you've got something complete, and you've finished it. That's that's the big virtue of it you see with a novel you have to keep picking up and putting down and I found actually novels on these long plane journeys are great because you can sink into them but I don't find my life I don't like to pick up and put down so much it's like knitting you know I, I, I prefer to take something whole away and so short stories really fit the mm. shape of modern life I find mm. I've been reading John Cheever recently actually I hadn't um, you know I hadn't known his work and he's, he's wonderful yeah great one about the radio have you seen that one I haven't Oh, it's, it's where a couple live in New York and they, they're tuning into the sort of different rows going on in various apartments around them But because there's something on their radio that allows them to do that. But anyway. <laughs> I'm sure you're asked often if you write from personal experience. And I, I did read uh, a quote of yours that said, I don't measure life against my own pulse only. And that seemed so important, crucial to a writer. What do you use of your own life, and hmm. how do you go about incorporating it or caring about it in your writing? Well, you're right. If you were only to stick to your own life, you'd have used up all your material by the end of the first book. Um, this is a question that audiences always ask at readings, um, how much is autobiographical? And I, I think, actually, my, my habit of mind is... Mm, I was at university and I was doing research and I realised I wasn't going to go into teaching. I somehow thought I would and then I realised during research, no. Then I was 23 or so, getting unemployable. And I saw there was a talent contest in Vogue magazine. Um, so I went in for it and one of the questions, the one you had to answer was, write your own autobiography. Which I did and it was so boring. It was, um, I did a great deal of homework. I helped my mother around the house. Oh. Um, and, I, <laughs> and also I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to talk about what boyfriends or anything. Christmas it was none vacation? of their, <laughs> that's right. And I didn't want to talk about my intimate life because that was none of their business, these strangers I didn't know. So I looked at it and thought, no. And then I made one up. I just um, thought, right. And I gave myself a very violent, troubled family in Yorkshire. Um, I think my father was a market gardener who used to drive down to Covent Garden every morning with Narcissi at two in the morning and I have four brothers who were paratroopers and it was all very, I, I think it owed quite a lot to Wuthering Heights actually looking back but I can't really remember. <laughs> but I know for the first year after that um, I got the job Oh, and I, I went to work at Vogue and um, they used to stop me in the corridor, the managing editor, and say, 
how are things in your family now? Is it any better with your father? And I'd be very red-faced and saying, yes, it's better, thank you. Yes, it's improving. (laughs) (laughs) But the moral there is, you know, use your imagination. And really, that's, that's what, you know, you're allowed to. And they got they got more than they bargained for. They got the right person. <laughs> they just thought she was different. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, Helen Simpson, thank you so much for being being with us in the studio. It's oh, been a pleasure already. talking it's to you. It's been lovely talking to you as well. Yeah, it's been very painless. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Helen Simpson's new collection of short stories is in the driver's seat. This is Catherine Petricelli. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.